Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Sex, Love, and Addiction. I've got a good friend of mine, a colleague who I actually developed a relationship with through our online work. Um, Both of us were volunteering for In the Rooms, giving advice on love, relationships, trauma, and addiction. And I just thought, oh my God, this woman is so talented. And I wanted to bring her to you so that you can have some experience. This is Dr. Jamie Marich. Jamie, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Rob. So I'm going to say Dr. Jamie travels internationally, speaking on topics related to EMDR, therapy, trauma, addiction, expressive arts, yoga, and mindfulness, while maintaining a private practice at her home base in Warren, Ohio. Um, She's the developer of Dancing Mindfulness Practice. Jamie's the author of five books, including the popular Trauma and the 12 Steps and EMDR Therapy and Mindfulness for Trauma-Focused Care, written in collaboration with Dr. Stephen Danzinger. Her newest title, Process Not Perfection, I wonder where you got that title, I love it. Process Not Perfection, Expressive Arts Solutions for Trauma Recovery was just released in April 2019. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you so much once again, Rob. Well, you're the one who was kind to me. I think you came running up to me and said, hey, we do this thing together and I've been listening to you. And I'm like, oh, I listen to you too. (laughs) Yeah, I think we just finally met in the flesh at a conference here not too long ago, but we've been in touch online for years. Well, I think one of the things that Dr. Marich and I share, and I want all of you to really get a sense of this, is that um, you probably hear me talk about trauma a lot and emotional trauma, early childhood trauma, and various kinds of abuse that lead to the adult dysfunction of intimacy disorders, sexual addiction. Um, sexual avoidance, intimacy avoidance, all those things. But when I talk about those things, I already have in mind the understanding that trauma and addiction kind of go together hand in hand. But a lot of the world doesn't really understand that. But my friend, Jamie Marich, she understands that. Dr. Marich, would you talk a little bit about how did you figure out the relationship between trauma and addiction and between those things? And how did you decide how you wanted to work with those things? How I figured it out was I was blessed beyond belief to have a first recovery sponsor and mentor who got it. I, her name was Janet, and I like to say that she was trauma-informed before the phrase trauma-informed was cool. 
in our professions. I mean, I can only describe her as somebody who was both an old timer, but also because of her background as a clinical social worker, I believe, very well versed in understanding the dynamics of human trauma. And I began my career working in in humanitarian aid. I was teaching English and doing some other aid work in Bosnia from 2000 to 2003. My family's of Croatian background. So when I was working over there is when I I met this, this very lovely individual, Janet, who mentored me both professionally and personally and got me on my own path of recovery. She was the first one to have ever validated things I experienced as traumatic because anything I really knew of trauma at that point was just the PTSD diagnosis as we associated it with the Vietnam War. I had no idea that trauma had so many more broader applications. And she was the first one to validate so much of my experience with addiction. I still remember that first conversation when I kind of vented on her about everything that was wrong with my life. And she responded, well, the good news is you're an alcoholic, you're an addict. And I said, how is that good news? And she said, we know what to do about it. And she really helped frame this whole idea of addiction as a disease to me in a way that made sense. I grew up in a pretty religious house where it was a sin period. And it just made so much sense how she presented it. And then a few months into our relationship together, she validated this meltdown I had at work as traumatic. She said, this isn't just stress. This is a post-traumatic disorder or post-traumatic response you're having. Wait, I want to say something before you go there, because I want to remind everybody, and I know that everyone listening isn't my age, okay? I'm 58, almost 60. But I think what most people need to remember or think about is that when we were, well, when I was growing up, because Jamie's a bunch younger than me, but when I was growing up, what happened to you as a child had nothing to do with you as an adult. In the 1970s and early 80s, when I was a kid, you know, there was no such thing as trauma therapy. There was no such thing as EMDR. There was no such thing as family therapy. There was no such thing as trauma repetition. I mean, no one had any understanding that if your dad beat the crap out of you when you were a kid or nobody was home to take care of you and you were a latchkey kid, that somehow that would end up in later life with your having profound issues with relationships, intimacy, dependency, and, and mental health. We just never thought, so I think that's kind of carried over, don't you think? I mean, no one really, why haven't we made that association, Jamie? I don't get it. I think sometimes it's threatening to make that association because whenever we name trauma as part of the culprit, especially when we're talking about early childhood developmental trauma, typically that means someone is responsible somewhere. And it becomes so much easier to say things like the past is the past, forget about it. Um, just focus on today. And even uh, an issue I've taken on in in the 12-step culture is, you know, I love the slogan one day at a time. I love the mindfulness idea of staying in the moment. But I also recognize that these things that have happened to us can keep us from staying in the moment, can keep us from living one day at a time. And so I've always challenged, you can't just throw that stay in the moment as a solution on a person without exploring the things that have made it difficult for them to stay in the moment. And when you're talking early childhood trauma, there's a lot of sensitivity around that because (laughs) we're calling out mom and dad, we're calling out the church, we're calling out society. So I think you said a couple of things that I want. I mean, certainly the the, the repetition part, you know, I think what you're saying is uh, can give every addict a little bit of a, certainly not any leeway on their addiction and their acting out, but certainly some leeway on, I'm a bad person, or I'm not lovable, or I did these things to my wife, or I did these things to my family, therefore I don't, you know, I don't deserve love. And, you know, when we put it in trauma, it takes it out of that whole paradigm of shame and bad person and morality, and it puts into, oh, you're a really broken person. 
Exactly. And so much of the trauma-informed approach is defined by not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you. Even like the SAMHSA view of trauma-informed care and the EMDR view of trauma recognizes that these maladaptive behaviors we're dealing with do not happen in a vacuum. They come from somewhere. And, and I do want to circle, though, to where I think the key is at bringing these worlds together. Because on one hand, I don't think it's productive, as I see a lot of my trauma colleagues do, just to kind of keep citing trauma, 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 trauma without any kind of action. And that's where I, uh, addiction culture may, may have a leg up. So Janet, the mentor I told you about who led me into recovery, I want to share with you and your listeners the two sentences she said to me that changed my life, saved my life and put this all into perspective for me. So after she heard elements of my story, her response was, Jamie, it's no wonder you became addicted. After everything you went through, it's no wonder you became addicted. What are you going to do about it now? And in those two sentences, she validated me and then she challenged me. So what you're saying, and I want to put a nail on this, is that part of the challenge with identifying trauma is it doesn't, it does create a sense of, oh, I was a victim and I have to have empathy for that victimization, but it doesn't necessarily push people into being accountable for their present. And the 12 steps and recovery and the second statement that she made to you is like, well, okay, you got the problem. What are you going to do about it? That should be pretty good for anybody who's listening. I, I hope that that guidance is helpful to others because I know it was helpful in my experience. It's guided how I work with clients over the years because I know that just that that it's not an either or. Um, and sadly, in a, in having walked the world of both fields, more the trauma mental health world as a professional and the addiction world as a professional, I, I don't see that we're doing a lot of looking at what each has to teach. It's still very much either or. And, and this is something that I, I say to you, Jamie, and if there's any therapists listening or any professionals or any mucky mucks in the field, you know, this is a big challenge for those of us who are in the, um, uh, on the streets handling people day in and day out is it's very hard for us to work with trauma and addiction, having no formal relationships put together by our governing bodies. I'm friends with a woman named Christine Courtois, who's really a founder in the in the trauma field. By the way, I'll tell you something about Christine, Dr. Courtois, who really, she was one of the founders of the PTSD diagnosis. Sure she was. One yeah. of those folks. And uh, she founded some of the first women's rape centers. In fact, I should probably have her on the show again. But in any case, you know, one of the things that, two things about Christine, and you'll love this. I, I said to her, she never used the word addiction, and I use the word trauma, but not that often when I was working. And I said to her, Dr. Courtois, what is the first thing you do with people who have a trauma problem? What is the first thing you take on with them? Because I was trying to look at what are the differences between the work she does with trauma, trauma, and the work I do with trauma and addiction. And you know what she said? She said, the first thing I do with a trauma client is safety. And I thought, well, what's the first thing we do with an addiction client? Stop them from driving drunk, stop them from getting arrested for that sexual behavior. We also do safety first. And they are such similar paths in, in a very meaningful way. But they don't have a clue, these trauma folks, about how many people we're treating for addiction who don't either understand or have a connection between things that happen to them and the ways they act out now. Yeah, it is an interesting connection about safety. Something I say a lot in my work, though, is I use the phrase safe enough um, more than absolute safety, because I do think absolute safety for a trauma survivor is something that comes over time. And for some of us, we may never get to that place of feeling absolutely safe in 100% of our contexts. 
So, I mean, I, I think the commitment to safety is, I, I like what you're getting at here, is strong from both camps. We may be getting about it in, in two different ways, but part of the work I like to promote is let's have a conversation about what safety means. And I, I think where I see a lot of problems in the addiction field is too much of this hard ass behavior to try to get people to stop the, maybe with good intention, because yeah, if you're driving- Well, intervention has been a model for us, right? right. And, and you hear Johanna Hari in his TED talk talk about, we've been doing war with addicts for hundreds of years. Yeah. Maybe all along we should have been loving them. Right. I have like the penultimate question for you. This is the question that clients ask all the time. What is trauma work? Okay, you want me to go do quote unquote trauma work. You want me to go to a center for two weeks or you want me to stay in on in your center for another week or you want to, uh, you want me to go to a workshop or, and, and it, you know, it almost sounds like, I mean, to the average person, trauma work, it sounds like grocery store. Like, okay, you go there and you do these things and then you're done and that's it. And you pick them up or so, but I don't think it's anything like that. So can you give people a clue? Like, what are we saying when we say we think we need to do, you need to do some trauma work? Yep. I think we first, for me to answer that question, I have to offer you my favorite working definition of trauma, which comes from the word origin, that trauma means wound. It comes from the Greek word meaning wound. And whenever we're talking, when somebody asks me, Jamie, what's trauma? It's any unhealed human wound. That's the simple humanitarian definition I give. Physical, mental, spiritual, sexual, financial, you name it. That wounding can come in different forms in the human experience. And it's not the wound itself that causes us problems. It's when the wound remains unhealed that causes us problems. So in a very broad sense, when I'm asked what is trauma work, it's, it's the broad spectrum of activities and connections that we give to people to help them heal their wounds. And I mean, I think one of the, the classic, it's, it's, not, it's not rocket science from the trauma field is this idea that wound healing needs to happen in stages. That if you think of a physical wound, we typically need to stabilize it first by washing it out, maybe putting stitches on it, putting a bandage on it. But then true healing has to happen from the inside out. And that's where the more kind of advanced interventions like EMDR therapy, hypnotherapy, even trauma-focused CBT has its place in, in a few places. So, I, I mean, that's where then I think the deeper healing can happen. Um, but it's all trauma work is my short answer to it, that even your, your vanilla rehab center that isn't pretending to offer anything in the way of sophisticated trauma work can still be trauma-informed in how they interact with clients and how they run treatment groups. Let me ask you a question about this. So before, I don't want to get too deep into the woods. I want to stay on this what is and what I, so someone told me I have to do some trauma work because uh, it's kicking up my addiction and I'm having trouble staying connected to my family. And what would I expect from that? Who would I go see? How long would I go for? How would I know when it's better? I mean, are you sending me down some rabbit hole of five years of treatment or what is trauma work? You know, is it a workshop? Is it a weekend? Is it a, and does it depend on how functional I am? How do you know? Now, if I was going in for cancer treatment, they would tell me all those things. So I think we can do the same thing, knowing not, not knowing the size of the cancer, the type of the cancer, but there's probably something invasive is going to happen. And you know, what, what, what is it like? So I'm going to intone Bessel van der Kolk for a moment for a quick answer here. Bessel van der Kolk, who's the author of The Body Keeps the Score, he's probably the most famous trauma psychiatrist on the planet today, who's really kind of accelerated this idea of trauma advocacy. Long story short, what he says is that for true trauma healing to take place, a person needs to learn that the danger has passed and to live in the reality of the present. 
And I think that's a lot of what we're getting at in addiction care as well. How do we help people live more in that place of one day at a time? And so for me, what trauma work will help you to do is to know that today is today. Trauma work can help you to know that I am not my thoughts, feelings, or sensations. I just am a person who has them. Jamie, let me ask you this. So let's say you and I were talking and you said something about that I disagreed with and I got furious and I don't usually get furious, but, and I can't even figure out why I got furious. Was it the way you said it or how you, that's not like me. How do I know when I'm, what is a trigger to trauma? And I mean, I know the answers to a lot of these questions, but I think they're so helpful for what is a trigger? How do I know I have one and how do you work on it? Yeah. I I think what makes something a trigger is when you clearly find yourself reactive, body, mind, soul, and you're kind of left with that hangover icky feeling when it passes. And to me, when you've really done your your trauma work, which can come in degrees, because even William Shakespeare said, how poor are they that have no patience? What wound does not heal but by degrees? And so I've never been one to believe that there's a quick fix for curing trauma because it it can happen over time. But I've noticed with both my patients and with myself that when I can start becoming more responsive to triggers instead of reactive, where I'm left with that, you know, icky feeling in my body afterwards. Or acting on the trigger and ending up having to clean up the mess later. For sure. I mean, that's when I know that things are shifting. Another kind of quick and easy definition I got about how how do we know trauma work is helping is from a colleague of mine who's a Vietnam vet. And he said, when you process trauma, you move it and shift it from being this hot charged memory that controls your life to just being a bad memory. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com, that's seekingintegrity.com, or call us at 747-234-4325. And, and so let me push you a little further. I know folks who have trauma from when they were one or two or four. You know, they know that because they know their family history. They're never going to remember really what happened to them when, when, when they were two and a half, when mom and dad were beating the crap out of each other. But they have profound trauma. How do you deal with, and, and maybe this is a larger question. For one thing, not, everybody, not everyone remembers having had trauma. Sometimes we see it in their adult behavior in the way that they live their life. In reactive or addictive. And we say, wow, there's probably something traumatic underneath that. You can sort of see the shadow of the trauma in someone's adult behavior, um, but not everyone remembers that anything bad happened to them. For sure. And that happens for a lot of reasons, because sometimes as a protective dissociative response, we can block out trauma. Like I realized in my work, I forgot my whole third grade year. That's another story. But to go to your original point about what about preverbal trauma, it's a thing, things that you don't have a conscious memory of because you were an infant or however it might, might be or a toddler. This is where we have to look more with body responses. You could look at any battery of books in the trauma field and you see titles like the body keeps the score, the body bears the burden, the body remembers, the body never lies. And they're exactly right because unhealed trauma, whether you have cognizant memory or not, really can play out in these body level responses. And so to me, although I want to be careful not to knock people who do cognitive only trauma work, 
Can you explain explain what that means? Basically things that are all about, well, what are your negative beliefs and let's confront them and let's tell a big long narrative about the trauma. So talk, th- talk therapy, basically. Talk therapy, cognitive therapy, what's sometimes called trauma-focused CBT, where a person just kind of goes through the narrative, exposure therapy are, are all cognitive forms. But what concerns me about those is if you have no cognizant memory, then what? And, and so much of what really needs addressed is at the level of the body. So here's where I can really get passionate because unhealed trauma plays out at the level of the body because of the limbic brain. So the limbic brain, which is the midbrain, the center brain, that is the brain that filters information as either dangerous or not dangerous at the time of the experiences. And when the information is not given a chance to process or heal, it can stay stuck there. So it's like the panic button can go off at the time of the trauma. And if it never gets reset, things are going to keep playing out at the limbic level, which is more likely to come through in body level sensations and phenomena. Um, Whenever the limbic brain gets overactivated, blood flow suspends to the prefrontal cortex, and that can make it hard to access our wisdom. What would be some kind of body experience? What, do you, what exactly do you mean when you say that might come out as a body experience? So just that un, that fiery sensation that comes up in the chest, that rolling that happens in the stomach, your shoulders spiking up towards the ears. It could also mean you lashing out at somebody, going from zero to 60. So yes, there may be some verbal content in it, but if you've ever heard that folk saying, his blood is up or her blood is up, that's what I mean by by body level sensations. And so here's the real bridge connection, that unhealed trauma can cause such distress at the body level, whether it's more of the hyperarousal experiences I described. Right, like sex addiction. Yeah, and for some of us, it's more hypoarousal, shutting down, going offline. But the thing is, where where drugs and alcohol or other reinforcing behaviors like what what you specialize in treating can kick in, is those also work with the limbic brain. (laughs) the limbic brain is where dopamine is released. It's, it's the pleasure brain. It's our primitive early developing brain. It's, yeah, it's, it's the older brain for sure. Um, so unhealed trauma can kick up such distress or discomfort at the body level that it's only human nature. It's really animal nature for us to seek things that will make us feel better. Whether that's feeling better or feeling more numb so that we don't have to feel the the intensity. And so if we're not working with folks on helping them listen to their bodies and work with distress at the body level, I think we're doing a disservice. Um, Something I, I told folks when I worked in more mainline treatment is that your body will tell you what's going on 10 steps before your mind is even aware of it. Yeah, you have to listen and be willing to pay attention. Yes, and so, so to me, so much of what treatment needs to involve, and this could be even before you do deep digging at the trauma work, is doing practices like maybe yoga or mindfulness or other embodied activities that helps you to be able to realize you have a body in the first place, that helps you to be able to notice responses at the level of the body and work with healthier or more adaptive coping other than just going to the drink or the drug or the reinforcing behavior. What you're really saying is, uh, what you're really talking about is a whole mind shift away from, for example, oh, I felt like drinking after I had a fight with my wife. What's wrong with me? I've been three years sober. Why do I feel like drinking? I'm such a piece of shit. I should be so, I'm sober. What you're moving that to, oh, my wife and I had a fight. And I think that reminds me of how my parents used to fight. And I feel a little bit tense. And I wonder if this is the kind of thing I would drink over. Yeah, because part, part of what's not productive is that I should know better. Because yeah, on one hand, you're right, especially if you're three years sober and you have a head full of recovery knowledge. Right. Intellectually, you're correct. 
Yeah, but the I should know better part of the brain is the neocortex. That is where, that's where wisdom, when we talk in the serenity prayer about the wisdom to know the difference, that is the more evolved brain. But for anything that is still stuck and unhealed and unprocessed, that's held with more of this limbic level activation, that will always kind of take over. And, and to use your example that you just gave, I, I, I always want to be clear when I speak on this, that this trauma paradigm is not about giving people excuses. Yes. Hopefully giving them channels to empower them to let me do something about this. Let me figure out where this is really coming from. Well, compassion, self-empathy, self-understanding. Yeah. And instead of just treating symptoms, let me figure out what this is really about. I think that's one of the most productive questions I learned to ask myself in the first five years of my own sobriety was when I felt those reactive moments happening, especially at work. I mean, my God, work's the place where they all seem to come up. I I learned to ask myself, what's this really about? First of all, I, I just want you folks to know, in case you're not aware of it, that what we're listening to is an extraordinarily skilled and experienced therapist talking about trauma. And my hat's off to you, Jamie, because you, the level of depth of understanding that you have about this issue is really very helpful and meaningful for everybody. And um, you know, I, I, I guess what I I wonder about is how can somebody know whether they need to work on, like what they need to work on. You know, you go to a therapist and you say, okay, you know, I stopped drinking or I stopped using or I stopped sexing or I stopped gambling and it's been six months and I'm feeling a lot better, but you know, I keep getting these desires, these triggers, these distractions. How will I know that I'm going to the right person? How will I know that they will be able to help me with this issue and not I mean, here's the thing, right? You can't see the trauma. You can't feel the trauma. You can't point to the trauma. Sometimes I barely even remember the trauma. So how do I know I'm not going to give myself off to somebody who's going to keep me in therapy for for five years around something that I don't even remember? I would say give yourself three sessions with the provider. Because yes, I I mean, I could give you tips about doing your homework ahead of time because therapists keep websites. Uh, They may call you back or have somebody who calls you back. And I think first and foremost, when you're selecting a, a therapist to do some trauma work with, it it is important that it happens in this crucible of connection. And there's a lot to be said about that. Because even though I'm, like you said, very well trained and blah, 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 blah. If if I don't connect with the person, and often that's not through any fault of our own, we just may not be the right fit with each other. And I think that relational connection has to be there first. And so give yourself three sessions, because a lot of what the literature shows is if the client feels there's a good therapeutic connection that's in place within three sessions, it's probably a good sign for good treatment outcome. And I, I really want to reinforce this thing that Jamie's saying because, you know, some of us think that we need to need to like the therapist, we should like the therapist, or they have so much knowledge, we should. And the reality is every single study that's ever been done on any kind of psychotherapy says that the most important thing is that you have a connected, honest, trusting relationship with that provider. And that whole thing I was talking about with the limbic brain, that, that middle part of the brain, that is also the brain that responds to connection. That is the brain responsible for connection. Or disconnection. Or disconnection. Yes, exactly. So having the, the, the container or the crucible or the venue of that solid relationship, I think is absolutely imperative because you can have the most trained person in the world. But if you're not connecting with them at a human empathetic level, it's probably not a good fit. So give it three sessions to see 
if there is a connection and listen to what they have to say about the different treatment approaches that they offer. See if they give you choice. Because I will tell you this, even though I specialize in EMDR therapy, it's not the only thing I do. I do expressive arts work. And so people who come to me kind of know they're getting a more holistic therapist. So most of the clients who see me at this point know know what they're getting and come to me for that. They've done their homework ahead of time. But I also think it's important that you see a therapist who doesn't just try to shove something down your throat. Like this is what we're going to do. Because part of healing and empowerment is realizing I have a choice in the matter. So even if they are strongly recommending something, you have a right to ask questions, you have a right to to know kind of the rationale behind why they want to do what they want to do. So use those first three sessions to really forge a connection, get your questions answered. And even in the first session or two, see if they're already working with you on some proactive solutions towards lifestyle change. Because this is something where I feel my trauma and mental health colleagues can learn. Yes, I know exactly what you're going to say. Can I say it for you? Oh, say it, please. So I wasn't there. I, I actually went to see a new provider not that long ago for medication evaluation. And we were going, I had, it's a new doctor, so I hadn't seen him ever. And we were going over my history and he said, okay, so you've had 27 years of therapy, which is true, right? Well, who else would do a therapy podcast? And, uh, you know, he said, um, so looking at how your life's working and how, what's not working, how you're feeling, he said, how many little teeny things do you think we could shave off your past? And how many, how much time do you think we could take looking at what you're doing in your life right now and how it's working for you? And I thought, oh, right. Therapy isn't just about making the pain of the past less pressure by working through it. It's also about deciding how you're going to live today and getting support for that. Right. And I share with you an insight from when I was working, it was either my master's or my doctorate. So this, it was years ago. I had a true interest in, well, what really works for healing addiction? Because obviously I had come up through the 12 steps and even though I, I called them out where they needed to be called out, I still had a love and regard for the 12 steps in a way that a lot of 12 step bashers obviously do not. So I became very interested in what really works. So I read books like Sober for Good. I read kind of the core texts of all the AA antagonists, all the AA alternatives. And the one common thread I found in all these different recovery paths was lifestyle change that you can have something like AA over here and it's complete diametric opposite rational recovery over here. And what they were both promoting were lifestyle change. And connection. Connection, yeah. Because that to me is, you know, it's interesting that, you know, addicts go off and isolate themselves. Wounded animals go off and isolate themselves. Trauma survivors go off and isolate themselves. But what does a 12-step meeting do or a therapy group? It brings people together and it, it allows us a safe place to begin to commune and connect with others when we thought no family would ever be safe. Yeah. And even if you don't feel safe in that place, it can be an exercise in distress tolerance to help you kind of navigate what do I need to do to keep myself safe or is there another group I can try where it feels like a better fit? So Jamie, before we get, I want to, I'm going to ask you how to find people can find you because I know they're going to want to, and they're going to want to read all your stuff and connect with you. And I want to get out on the road with you and do some speaking. I think we'd be fun together. I think it'd be fun. But I have a question I'd like to ask everybody, which is, you know, not everybody listening to this podcast, probably in the majority of people don't necessarily have the resources to go to therapy. They may never make, you know, they may make four to six therapy sessions if their insurance allows it. I mean, you and I grew up in a time when, you know, first of all, as therapists, we were required to do this as a part of our work. And every therapist, by the way, if your therapist hasn't done at least five years of therapy, may not be the right therapist for you. Just a thought. I agree with you wholeheartedly, brother. <laughs> another <laughs> another qualifier. But in any case, the work that I do online on In the Rooms and what I do on sex and relationship healing is 
weekly support work for people who don't have the opportunity to get the help from a therapist. And you and I both volunteer and give a lot of time away. I mean, you volunteered for years, but how do we help someone with an issue as complex as early complex trauma or early profound trauma? When, you know, they're going to have friends and they're going to have community and they're going to have, maybe they're going to have church and hopefully they'll have 12-step support, but they really don't have the resources, either time or money or both to enter a therapy process, trauma work two to three years at least. So how, how do we talk, how do we talk to them about how they can find their own healing and peace without the resources and the ability to do some of those things that are really are a luxury for most people? So one of the things I have felt very strongly about doing is making a lot of the work I share with the world available on a complimentary basis online. That means free. (laughs) Free. Yeah, definitely. So I want to draw people to my website, traumamadesimple.com. And I specifically set this up as a trauma resources site, either as a complement to therapy or for people who just for one reason or another can't access a lot of the services that we're talking about right now. And I mean, on on one hand, I'm very careful with a lot of the kind of statements I give with the YouTube videos, like this is not meant to be do-it-yourself therapy. But I've also seen many people be able to do a good amount of healing by their own self-exploration and discovery. So you go to TraumaMadeSimple.com. It's a catalog of everything I've done for free online. I have a lot of YouTube videos there that can be accessed, uh, mindfulness skills, trauma-informed yoga skills. For people who are interested in seeing what EMDR therapy looks like, I have the largest collection of online demos in EMDR. I've done a lot of articles. As I know you've made a lot of resources available online too. I send a lot of people to your different sites that you've had. It's where it's at, babe. Yeah, because I think... (laughs) Part of the, the the charism of this work or the passion is, yes, I, mean, I do make a living with training and therapy and all this, but I want to make what we do available on a larger scale. And I would add to that that part of the passion is I got to survive all of this and thrive despite, and I want to help other people do that too, because I believe I can. And that's what you're doing. And I mean, the internet can be a devil in a lot of ways. Don't get me wrong. Yes, absolutely. But you have to know where you're going and make good choices. You know, it's like walking down the right street at the right time of day. You know, you have to make a good choice. Totally. And I and I think it's been a phenomenal resource for connection and for allowing to access things that they may not have been able to access twenty or even ten years ago. So that's that's why I like YouTube and why I do a lot of my my work out there for people to be able to access. And even my newest book, Process Not Perfection, which is the expressive arts book. Um, I've tried to make it available as affordably as possible. It's $15 for 400 pages of resources. And I specifically wrote that book for the general public, that it's also something that can be used as a complement to therapy. And I try to keep as many safe qualifiers as I can in there about if you're doing this on your own, here are some things that you want to keep in mind. Uh, but I have set it up as a self-guided resource that people who either can't afford or can't access therapy can hopefully use as a way to use expressive arts to get some healing for all of this. Absolutely. Jamie, Marich, I am so grateful for you in my life. And folks, um, how can people, Jamie, how can they reach you if they want to drop you a note or get information or just see you online? Can you give a couple of those links? Sure. So traumamadesimple.com, the one I referenced, we have a contact page there. You can go to my main site, jamiemarich.com and my different programs like Dancing Mindfulness and Institute for Creative Mindfulness, I'll link off of that. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Jamie Marich. On Instagram, I'm at Dr. Jamie M. And Facebook, um, probably the best Facebook resource I want to plug right now is there's a Dancing Mindfulness and Expressive Arts Community Forum. That's a closed group, but people can request to join it. And yeah, if you just search Jamie Marich on Facebook, a lot of my different projects and connections will come up. 
Jamie Marich, a gift to all of us, Dr. Jamie Marich, I should say. Folks, we will be back with Jamie again, I absolutely promise you. And hopefully you'll see us out there doing some work, lecturing and training and doing workshops because this fit between addiction and trauma needs better understanding, more compassion, and a real way for all of us to find our way through it. So thank you, Jamie, and we'll talk again soon. You're most welcome, Rob. Thanks for having me. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.